Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown, he's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another podcast episode of... Those two guys pretending to be two other guys doing a podcast about pretending. Rick and Nick talk flicks. That's true. I guess we are doing a podcast that's all about pretending. I got a little inspiration from Tropic Thunder. I'm the dude who's playing a dude pretending to be another dude. (laughs) That is very true. And that's quite a place to draw inspiration from, Tropic Thunder. It is Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Indeed. We are the Stunt Doubles. I'm Dave Brooks. And I'm Joel Hoover. We did endings last weekend. Yes. So now we're talking about the end-all, be-all. I don't think we're going to run into too many spoilers, but you always got to put out the the heads up. We might talk spoilers. Well, there's a a good chance we will. There's a pretty good chance we'll talk spoilers. So heads up, if we start talking about a movie or a character and you haven't seen it and want to see it, there could be spoilers lying ahead like a shallow reef. Rating to gut your keel out from under you, so heads up. <laughs> we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater as well, located on Highway 2. Reopened. Reopened, yes. Make sure you keep on stopping by. If you don't feel comfortable going to the theater to see a movie, you can still pick up your concessions from there, especially your popcorn. If you are comfortable enough with going to see a movie, take a look to what kind of showtimes they've got and what's available right now um, before you stop by and get a chance to uh, check out a th- see if you can check out a movie yeah go check out the showtimes and uh see what they've got posted there there's new stuff starting to trickle in slowly but surely it's not not a whole lot of mainstream stuff that's going on right now which definitely pertains to our big news item of the day but yeah you can still stop on by and keep supporting the bemidji theater in a variety of ways right now whether you are or are not going to the movies at some point movies are going to come back full throttle they're going to be open they'll be taking everybody including me i will probably be there on first night so long as i have a vaccine in me which i currently don't but we're getting there i'm not 65 yet so we're going to get there and i look i'm i can't tell you how much i miss going to see movies at this point i would go see the newest uh, alan alda movie I mean, nothing wrong with Alan Alda, but I just I want to see a movie. Right, anything. In to, the theater. Anything that you can get a chance to get your hands on, more I've, or less. I've, I've said a couple times, I think the last movie I saw in the theaters was a little over a year ago now. It was 1917. Great right. movie. And uh, that was the last one I saw. And it's been over a year now. That I saw yep. it in, I think, mid-January of 2020. Yeah. So that's a little over a year. And I'm, I miss, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting, baby. I need a fix. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, today let's, let's talk some current. Let's talk. Uh, we'll get to our main event. Let's do something a little contemporary. This was a good idea that you had too to well, do this. Well, we're coming up on what would normally be about the time for the Academy Awards. You'd be getting nominees right now. The day we're recording this is February ninth, twenty twenty one. This is about the time that nominees are announced. Then usually by the end of February they have the Oscars. But it's been a pandemic. There's been like. 1.2 movies released in the last year, and a lot of them have gone directly to streaming, some of them streaming and theatrical, but it kind of begs the question, I, I, have, I have to look it up, how many movies have been released, how many would be eligible to win an Oscar, 
and what's going on with the awards and should they even think about holding it even if they can do it safely because there's just a lack of options. Technically, I'm not throwing shade on Wonder Woman 1984, but it and three other movies have been released. Should, right. should Wonder Woman be eligible for Best Picture? I mean, it wasn't that bad of a movie. It wasn't that great of a movie, but I'm not going to give it Best Picture. As far as major tentpole movies, I can only think of two. Wonder Woman 1984 and Tenet. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Those are the only two major tentpole movies that I can think of from the past year. So you're going to have independent projects or you're going to have movies that were released directly to streaming platforms or services. Like, for example, Mank. That's one of the main ones that is apparently going to be up for a lot of awards. And it looks like it's going to be one of the ones in the hunt for some Oscar nominations. That How do you properly evaluate plus it puts it begs the question one of the biggest questions surrounding the oscars over the last few years of what do you do about these streaming platform focused movies because all of a sudden now they have to rely upon mostly those movies to be the ones that are going to be populating this year's award show and and this year's possible awards although there's there's a couple of movies that are going to get a chance here within the next month or so within the newly expanded window that they're giving for this past year there's movies that if they go to the big screen and streaming on the same day they're going to get an opportunity to also be in the running when they wouldn't have in years past. Well, and it's funny that the controversy a while back, you know, Spielberg had said, I, if it's not, if it's a streaming movie, it's not a movie. It's got to be on the big screen to be a movie. And well, it is for this past year. We, t- I know, we talked about that probably about a year ago. And uh, now that's all you have for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions, yeah. but not many. There's maybe two exceptions. And we don't have to have tentpole movies to be, you know, a best picture. A lot of times these movies come out kind of underground. You're like, oh, okay. And then they get nominated for best picture and they almost come back into the theater. And because of that, they become mainstream because they're nominated for whatever best picture or whatever. And that isn't really going to be the case this year. They might come out as streaming platforms that they otherwise weren't. But, you know, I, I said before off air, I'm going to equate this to a line from Bruce Willis in Armageddon. It's not love. It's a lack of options. You know, you, you, I'm not going to say anything wrong about Tenet or Wonder Woman 1984. They were both good movies, but they're both uh, – You can't, Wonder Woman's a sequel, but Tenet's not a sequel, but it's the latest movie from Christopher Nolan, and everyone is saying the same thing. It's good, but he's got other movies that are way better. Wonder Woman, the first one, was great, This, you know, but this one's not as good. Bottom line, so, you want options. You want options, but why should these be automatic frontrunners? Just because of lack of options. Correct. You know, I, everyone did a good job on them, but are they worthy of, you know, i probably give some writing and maybe some cinematography and so forth to Tenet, but beyond something technical, it's it's good, but you hold that up against other highbrow movies that even just Christopher Nolan has done, whether Inception or Memento, they're all head and shoulders above Tenet. The other problem you run into is with a lack of mainstream pictures involved. Who wants to watch that? You're going to get the the avid film buffs who have watched a lot of these movies that are going to be out there and up for these awards who will watch. But who's going to want to watch yeah. I, I don't know if anyone really is going to take that that great of an interest in it. Um, 
you need to have those the mixture of those those mainstream movies that are up for some awards and and including have a shot at some of the bigger ones alongside some of the really really good ones that maybe you haven't heard of quite as much like think of parasite from last year for example you know you you've got to have a mixture of that to make it an appealing oscars and right now that doesn't exist and and it's not going to exist it, it flat out is not going to exist for this year's edition of the Oscars. So how do you rectify that? Or do you just forge forward and say, you know what? These are the best of the best for this past year. And regardless of mainstream or not, let's honor them. Mainstream is a term that's, you know, fair. Okay, it's not mainstream. What really the Oscars are for is good. Are they good? Were they top of their class? Were they the cream of the crop when you hold them up against all the best pictures of any year? So when you're looking at who were not just the winners of, but who were nominated for Best Picture 1940s, the 1950s, so on and so forth till this year, you're going to look at a huge dip just because of lack of options. A lot of movies that people knew wanted to find an audience, they knew they weren't going to find that audience in a lot of ways, so they've held on to them. They've held them back. So a lot of the good movies didn't. I'm not saying that movies that did come out on a streaming or did come out on a dual release aren't good. I'm just saying that clearly there's a change here. There's a drop-off because of the lack of options. Why would you want to look back over the history of the Oscars 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, and you see a big dip in the movies that came out in 2020 as regard to what the Oscars were? And that's another thing that they're trying to do this year. So the Oscars normally are held at the end of February. They used to be held in March. Um, but they're going to hold them at the end of April. April 25th, as of right now, is when they're going to hold the, the Oscars. Another thing is, generally, well, not just generally, but ever since the 30s, anything that comes out in a calendar year, so January 1st of 2020, initial release, right through the December 31st is when you generally have that. That's why a lot of times around Christmas time, you'll get a couple of releases New York and L.A. playing everywhere else January. Well, why right. do they do that? Because they don't want it to get buried. They want it to be eligible for Oscars, but they'll put it into a wider release after the first of the year, but it could still be up for Oscars, and it'll play at a time when you generally don't have a lot of big-name movies playing. So you might see you know, some yearning love story about a maiden in burlap sack or whatever that's got a great performance, but you'll actually have a chance to see it when all the big tentpole Christmas movies are out. So what they're doing now for the 2021 Oscars, eligibility is still going on. You can release a movie through the end of February 2021, and it will be eligible for Oscars just a couple months from now. And I suppose they're thinking that going into next year's Oscars, it's not going to be that big of a deal because there's going to be such a logjam, or at least they're anticipating a logjam of movies between March and December that's going to make up the field pretty well. That's going to take care of you know, being able to fill out the, the group for next year. Yeah, but that's what it should be also. You know, I mean, not, I'm not going to get political here, but we mock other countries that really only have one candidate. Well, there was an election. Well, what would you vote for? The one guy? I mean, that's not much of an election, is it? So it's the same thing with the Oscars here. Uh, there's a lack of options in a major way, and it hurts the integrity of the Oscars themselves. There is something to be said about we're going to put our head down and we're going to soldier forward. Yeah, but if you're really going to soldier forward, the time to have done that is over. The Oscars is not the thing that should be soldiering for. The Oscars should be to recognize things when there's something to recognize. You ought to do a combined Oscar. 
and maybe you give away, if you're going to have so many movies, I'm just coming up with something off the top of my head. Maybe you have two Best Picture Oscars because you get two years worth of movies basically coming out that in one year. That has kind of been talked about before. So I, I wouldn't say that that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know. You're just throwing some ideas out sure. there. Sure. Yep. Already there used to be five nominees for Best Picture. And they change it to 10. All right, so we've got a lot of things that you want to make eligible. Well, you're going to have a bajillion movies come out. So for one, it's going to be harder. You're going to have two years' worth of movies, pretty much. So why don't you make it a supersized Oscars? You have your normal 10 categories. For this one year, let's make it 15 categories, and there will be two Best Picture Oscars. You're going to have one of the rest, one one actor, one director, one actor, so on and so forth, but two Best Pictures, all right, for this one year, because mm-hmm. of this thing, okay, that's an extra gimmick. This year, there will be two. 15 films enter. Two leave. Thunderdome. I don't know how people will feel about two or a sharing of it, including those who made those movies, but it'd be kind of nice, especially if there is a, a massive logjam that ends up happening. I'm trying to... Wasn't there a tie one year in some category? Maybe it wasn't Best Picture, but it was like Best Actor or something. There was a tie, if I remember right. And they said, we have a tie. So if I remember right, maybe I'm totally fantasizing. Maybe I had a dream and I can't confuse it from reality. But I want to say something like that happened. And I don't mean when they announced the wrong (laughs) Best Picture. Oh, sorry, guys. It was La La Land. No, it was Moonlight. Whoops. That's not the one I mean. I mean, I think there was a legitimate tie. I want to say it was Best Actress, if I remember. Don't look it up. We'll look it up after the show. We can add a a postscript. But I'm pretty sure there was a tie within the last five years. If I'm remembering right, I want to say it was like Matthew McConaughey was announcing it. And so it was whatever Dallas Buyers Club came out, it was probably the year after that because I think he was presenting it. And I think he said, we have a tie. And there were two. I want to say it was Supporting Actress or Actress, if I remember right. And... Why would we want to listen to anything I say anyway? Why am I doing Ooh, a podcast? It happened back in 1969. I'm talking within for best my actress. lifespan. Right, right. But I, I'm, I just looked this up when Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn tied for, for best actress that year. Streisand was 26 at the time. Hepburn was 61. And, and they ended up tying. Um, Streisand had gotten it for Funny Girl and Hepburn had gotten it for The Lion in Winter, and they ended up tying for it. That's that's wild. Funny enough, I just got a mental oh, image of these two actresses in costume running for the finish line, and they both, you know, pinkies both over the line at the same moment in a tie. 2013, best sound editing. Oh, okay. Zero Dark Thirty and Skyfall tied for sound editing. I bet you if you look, there's another one. Um, so here, Mark Wahlberg... And Ted co-presented on it. Yeah, yes, his animated co-star Ted co-presented. And uh, Wahlberg said, no BS, we have a tie. That I remember. He said, no, uh, said there's no kidding here. McConaughey, Wahlberg, it's like the same guy. Boston, Texas, sure. You know what? Now that you say that, I I mean, I remembered vaguely that there had been a tie in the past. I was like, uh, I remember everyone was like, what? What is this? But it's possible. It is, it is possible. Not just although, possible, it's happened. It has, and although it's very, very, very unlikely when you've got that many votes. 
I think you're going to have a logjam for the 2022 Oscars. And I do believe, I mean, vaccines are rolling out. Things are going to reopen. By the time we get to summer, we ought to have something resembling something close to a normal box office, so to speak. Um, maybe the box office numbers were going to be down, but at least movies are going to be coming out. And we're going to have a huge logjam of stuff for the 22 Oscars. This is called a good problem to have. Truly, you're going to have the cream of the crop nominated and other things that might otherwise rise higher than maybe they deserve to aren't going to make it this year. While the 2022, while the 2021 Oscars, you're going to have movies you've never heard of that are going to not only be nominated, but something's going to win Best Picture, and you're going to hold that up against all these other previous winners that don't belong in the same category as The Sound of Music. Or I still think Saving Private Ryan should have won, but Shakespeare in Love yeah. or you know, all, all these other great movies, <sighs> Moonlight. That, Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. So the Oscars, I think they ought to hold them off. I think there's something about putting a square peg through a round hole, and I think that's where we're at with the Oscars. Just hold them off. But as of right now, they're going to hold them on April 25th, which is late. They're still talking about having an audience there. And rather than put all the celebrities at risk and all the actors, why don't we have a whole room full of celebrity lookalikes, you know, of any era? Fifteen Jack Nicholsons, two Clint Eastwoods, a couple of Sidney Poitiers. I mean, why not? I like that. Scattered. So they're not all <laughs> together in a row, you know, and have it that way. And then have the winners on backup Zoom calls or whatever. You know, if you're going to do it, the, if you're going to force it, then let's not be stupid about it. Let's do it, but let's do it memorably. And give people a reason to watch because you're not going to be watching for the titles because I couldn't tell you what one of them are. Tenant and Wonder Woman. That's all I have. Ready to get into today's topic? Suppose we might as well. Yes. Let's rant about something else, shall we? Yes, something that I think might be a little bit more positive on the whole. Or negative. Or negative. Or negative. Well, in some cases, it might be heroes and villains. Heroes and villains. But specifically... We got to rank uh, to some degree. We're kind of Hoove and I kind of went off on our own directions, but for the most part, let's rank the top five or whatever bad guys and good guys. Not greatest characters of all time, but clearly hero types and villain types. And so we're going to name our favorites. And this is tough because how do you narrow it? I just I just went straight five best bad guys, five best heroes, straight up. And no, no fanciness about it. That's tough. There's a lot of omissions that are, even to me, controversial. And people that are on the, what? He's higher than, well, yes, according to me, I think, yes. And I won't lie, I knew that if I just sat down and had to think of some great characters, I knew I was going to just straight out miss somebody that should have been on the list. So I won't lie, I went to Ranker, and I just looked at the names. I didn't care where they you were You went positioned. to Ranker? I went to Ranker. I went to the American Film Institute. Well, I went to Ranker. And I just took a look at the top 50 names. I didn't know, pay any attention to where they were ranked. I just, oh, yeah, he's a good one. Oh, yeah, he'd be in the top five maybe. And I got like 10 of them. And then out of the top 50, I took 10 names. And then out of that 10, I gave my ranking to the top five bad guys and good guys. That's how I did it. And, uh, yeah, there's some that were low on ranker that made it to my top five. Do you want to talk about? criteria for heroes and villains a little bit before getting into the list not necessarily i think i'll break it down why when i get to that sure. particular why okay. is he so high well because so it's a straight up personal thing it's i mean i'm weighing some loftier things but really it comes down to my own personal opinion 
And these are the kind of debates we've got as Americans, we're fighting so much about freaking everything. This is the kind of debate that I have new problems sitting down having waffles with Hoove and arguing over while we're spitting syrup and orange juice at each other over what? You're going to put so-and-so higher than so-and-so? I can't believe you call yourself a movie fan. Hey, what do you know? You put so-and-so. We're going to have a little fun. I think, honestly, putting up, since now he's a movie character with Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers, he should be the all-time good guy. I'm just thinking. Well, It's just occurred to me. That's true. Yeah, that is true. All right. Lay it on me, Dave. What have you got? Well, let's like they always say, give me the bad news first. So let's start with the bad guys. So the bad guys, number five to number one. Number five best bad guy or worst bad guy, John Doe from Seven. Oh, man. Kevin Spacey. <laughs> and let me tell oh, you why. He, he doesn't show up to the last, like, what, 15 minutes of the movie. And he just literally walks in as a background character. And I guess on set when they filmed it, he is there more than you know. He actually is in the background in scenes, but you don't get a focus on him. But he said, I was there, you know, checking out my handiwork, so to speak, as the cops were investigating. So Kevin Spacey is technically within the frame of the camera lens more often than you see. But he just kind of walks into the police station, detective, detective, detective. And then you find out he's the one committing these horrible, heinous acts that have been extremely well, intricately planned and executed, one taking over the course of a year to do. And his motivation is just, it's just chilling. And what's his true motivation behind doing it? They never say. He just kind of does. He's just this nutcase that goes on a rampage of killing people in the method of the seven deadly sins. And he just kind of shows up matter-of-factly and intends himself to be, remember, spoilers, one of the victims. Mm -hmm. I want to be revenge. So I want you to kill me and make my work complete. And that's the big twist at the end. If you kill him, he wins. And so Brad Pitt kills him anyway. But he's such a cold, callous character and in a lot of ways much like life. You look into real-life killers, why do they do it? I don't know. Why did John Doe, Kevin Spacey, do it in Seven? I don't know. But it was so bizarrely well, intricately. It's like Hannibal Lecter. You have to admire the brilliance while you fear him. So Uh he's number five on my all-time bad guy list. You want me to go through the top? How do you want to do this? Do you want to go uh, my one for you, one for me? Let's let's keep going through yours because I have right. some other things I, I want to All explore right. with this topic beyond just my the bad, list. I'll give my bad guys and then I will serve you into your court. All right, number four best bad guy. I just mentioned him, Doctor Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, in, in the in yeah. not any one movie necessarily, but it is the Anthony Hopkins version. So Silence of the Lambs. I agree. Red Dragon. Um, and Hannibal, which is my least favorite of the bunch. We're not talking about Ma- Manhunter. We're not talking about the TV show. I'm talking about Anthony Hopkins' version, which I think is the best version of any of those Lecter characters. And for the same reason as John Doe, he's so frightening, but you have to admire just his intelligence, his brilliance. It's you're you're it's like a car wreck. You're so captivated, but you can't. You don't want to look, but you can't help but look, and you can't help but admire him. And there is a little bit more of a method to his madness and more of an understanding as to why he does what he does. In a way, he's kind of like Thanos and that he's, you know, bettering humanity in a way and he's trimming the fat. In his own way. He's cutting off people in his very own warped way. Trimming the fat. Oh, don't. Yeah, I said that was an accidental pun. Uh 
But in his own way, you can understand in a very perverse way why he's doing what he's doing. He's cutting off the rude people and people that you know he feels society's better without. Uh-huh. So he's not necessarily killing indiscriminately, but the 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 player in the orchestra that just can't play a good note and he's wrecking the whole show. So he kills him and serves him up for dinner. You know it, what? Yes, but the orchestra sounds so much better. And even people that were at the dinner were from the orchestra saying, "I can't help that he's gone. He was a bad player." You know. It's so there's something about it that's almost perversely humorous, but what a role! And Anthony Hopkins, of course, for Silence of the Lambs, he won Best Picture for doing the role, and it basically Best put Actor, him, Best Actor, and it put him, which is funny because he only had like barely 15 minutes of screen time scattered throughout the whole movie, but he won not Supporting Actor, but he won Best Actor. He's barely in the movie, and which is funny you don't think about that, but it's true. Um, it's it's so. What an amazing character. It really is. And here's a guy that while he was, you know, known, he wasn't known. That made his career. He got a career. And I don't remember how old he was. He was like 50 years old when he did that movie. All of a sudden, all these Anthony Hopkins movies that you could sell the the tickets based on the name were something. So what a what a role. What a truly bad guy role. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be that version. Number three, The Joker specifically who's the best version of the Joker, according to me, Heath Ledger from The Dark Knight. I'm not knocking anybody else's performance. I'm just saying that I think he just nailed that role. Anarchy is pretty much his motivation. You don't know what he's going to do, and either does he. You know, he's like a dog chasing a parked car. What does he do when he catches it? He has no idea. I don't have a plan, but he's going to go out and he's going to commit these heinous acts, kill this one guy just because... You know, at least Harvey Dent will flip a coin. If it lands bad for you, well, then that's the, not my fault. That's the coin. Joker hasn't a clue what he's going to do until right. it's already done. So he'll look at it, you know, ready, fire, aim kind of approach. And that almost makes it frightening. And again, it mirrors real life. Why did you do it? I don't know. But nonetheless. So and I think Heath Ledger nailed it better than everything else. It's got one foot much more planted in something realistic version versus any other version of the joker and i'm not knocking jack nicholson i'm not knocking jared leto i'm just saying that they're so over the top cartoonish it's unlikely you're ever going to run into anything even resembling that in real life and in a way that kind of takes me out of it but heath ledger there are people probably not unlike that walking through the world and i think you know i I would have to say that uh while joaquin phoenix's version of the role it's what I would classify a really good performance in an otherwise not so good movie. I didn't like the movie. I just don't. It's just it's not that good. Okay. But it's a great performance. It really is. And that's the only thing about that movie. And he's also very chilling in real life, but it was a superior movie, a superior performance, the uh, the so far the best iteration of the Joker character I've ever seen. And number 3 on the list. Number 2. I can't pronounce his last name, but No Country for Old Men. Anton Oh man, Javier Bardem. Good choice. This has been really good choice. This has been cited by psychiatrists and psychologists and of the psychiatric profession as a perfect manifestation of what is uh, a sociological psychopath. Yeah, you know, he just is doesn't care. You know, pull flip that coin out of your pocket. What do you? What do I stand to win? Great choice, Dave. What do I stand to lose? Everything. And he doesn't care. He's just sitting there. Right. Tell me what it's going to be. I'm going to kill you or I'm not going to kill you. And I could care less either way. Yep. But one of the way. I mean, what? How bizarre is that? Apparently, 
that is how the mental state of that works. Even though the ending of that movie frustrated me a lot, I think that's a great choice regarding his character and, and him being that kind of a villain because, really, he is that kind of a villain. And it, it does bear mentioning, you know, he all, Harvey Arbaradam also plays another really good bad guy in Skyfall where he's yes, playing Silva, Silva, the bad guy, who's, I think, one of the more memorable Bond bad guys of all the Bond movies ever over the 50-plus years. And I'm sure he's a really nice guy. He's got a great, you know, you know, great wife. But what uh, he's got to be able to tap into something dark to have such memorable bad guy roles. So I'm not going to do a honorable mention, but I did mention Silva. Javier Bardem, what a what a great role as Anton. And it's it's maybe not the best movie, but it's like Joker. It's great performance in an otherwise okay movie, but a lot of good performances in a movie that's better than eh. It's pretty good. It was up for Best Picture, and it, it was worthy of that. It's the Coen Brothers, but it's definitely different, and and the character of Anton definitely stands out, and enough to make my number two. He's just chilling. Yeah, very. And he's not playing it over the top. He's very. really understated. Yep. And there's something about Javier Bardem's eyes, I think. In any role he plays, he could see this madness coming through. He kind of reminds me, I'm a Star Trek fan, of Khan Noonien Singh. Particularly Ricardo Montalban. He's got yeah. something about those eyes that just, ooh, the fire of the devil itself burns in those eyes. So he's got that. All right, number one. Number one. It's got to be Darth Vader. No, it's not. It's not. And I'll tell you why. It's okay. Not. Darth Vader redeems himself at the he end. He does. Yes. So that, he does. You, you got you to keep score the whole game, not just when he blew up the planet and when he shook yep. the guy out and when he said that curse word and kicked the dog. He, he <laughs> came around at the end. But number one for me, because he's one of my biggest fears, <laughs> is Bruce the Shark. Bruce Jaws. the Shark! Jaws, yes, that's right! Jaws of is course. the ultimate bad guy. And to Nature. This, Nothing quite like nature. Because the, you know, it's as simple as the score itself. When John Williams, who did the score to Jaws, came up with that iconic... And we've done a show about soundtracks, so I'm probably being repetitious here with re-explaining this. He sat Steven Spielberg down at the piano and played him the theme. Didn't. Spielberg laughed out loud. He thought he was kidding. You're kidding, right? Didn't, didn't, didn't. That's the score. Are you kidding? But the way John Williams explained it, he's a, the shark is a force of nature. It's driven, driven by a primitive need. It swims, it eats, it makes baby sharks, and that's it. And that's what it does. And the theme was reflective of that. It's not that the shark is evil, although maybe the shark in that movie does things that real sharks don't do. But, so maybe he's slightly more than just a shark, slightly more evil, but because it's just what it is, and it's kind of luck of the draw, are you in the wrong place at the wrong time, like that Kittner boy? I mean, why not those kids playing football this 15 feet from him? No, he went after the Kittner boy, just because. Just because he snacked on the dog just minutes before that, which was happening off camera. It's just what sharks do, to the point where, and I live, we live in Minnesota, where we record this podcast, 10,000 Lakes. I know, You're not running into a shark. No. I know that there's not one shark in that lake that's any longer than my thigh bone. I get it. I get it. It doesn't matter. That's intelligent thought and intelligent fear. We're talking about <laughs> gut fear and gut right. intelligence where it doesn't matter the logic. I'm, hey, I'm under the pontoon boat in the summertime looking down at my feet dangling into the great green abyss below. I'm pretty sure I just saw a giant blur shoot past me the size of a Greyhound bus. Shark, I got to get out of the lake. It's not a shark. There wasn't anything there in the first place. It doesn't matter. The shark, the movie, and the second one, the sequel's not bad either. Different Bruce. Bruce 2. 
but it's still to the point where it's just outright terrifying. Yep. And it could happen to you. Combined with the music. You're not going to run into a hockey mask killer, but you very well could run into a shark. I am impressed, Dave, because given your appreciation for and love of horror movies, I I thought maybe there would be a horror movie villain who would end up on your list somehow. But I I like the complexity of your list of villains. I'll I'll tell you who almost made number one was Jason. Jason. He almost did. But the the kicker was that uh, the kicker was the shark. You're going to run into one of those quite possibly. You might not know it, but they're there, and you know it. But I'm only afraid when I go out to get another bundle of wood from the woodpile at night that there's somebody hiding behind it with an axe. There isn't, and I know it. But you can't even go down the realm of well, there could be, yeah, but there isn't. I don't have a one through five for my list, but your thinking was very similar to my thinking on movie villains because. The villains who are complex or who make a a turn for the better in the end, I appreciate those villains, but as far as being truly villainous, they sometimes don't stand out in that way. Darth Vader is iconic for many reasons. His voice, his overall appearance, the fact that he was different than any other villain that had ever been seen in movie history. And yet, what what knocks him a little bit as a quote-unquote villain is the complexity factor, which is, a, which is a good thing. I mean, that's a really good thing. I like complexity. I like where the line between hero and villain is a very thin one, or that there are reasons. But when it comes to a villain, they sometimes don't stand out quite as much then because they are not pure evil. There, there are two categories that I kind of was thinking about a little bit with this that really stick out. One is when it's a creature or is is some kind of... Um, non-human form. Did Bruce make your list too? Bruce did not make oh, my okay. list. No. Um, different non-human form. But there was so there's one because there's no there's no thinking there's no logic. It's pure nature unless logic is too much, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. The other though is when the character is pure evil, pure evil. That's the villain that chills me. That's the villain that terrifies me. That's really the the villain that maybe any one of us could be. If... Did your fourth grade math teacher make this list? No, <laughs> no. Um, th- those are the villains that really stand out. Now, there are iconic villains, and that's why Darth Vader was an honorable mention for me. I mean, just, just for the sheer iconic nature of him as a villain. But the, the real villain, that's Emperor Palpatine. I mean, you want the pure evil, that's Emperor Palpatine. In Star Wars, Darth Vader, like you said, has that redemptive term, which is great. It's great, but it takes away a little bit from the villainous aspect. My other, uh, my other honorable mention was Roger Verbal Kint, because oh, yeah. with Verbal Kint, what makes Verbal a great villain is but that is, you don't. Can you call him Verbal Kint because he's not really Verbal Kint? Well, sure, you can call him Verbal Kint, yeah, because he's Kaiser Sose. Um, so that's what. That's what makes him a great villain is that you don't know he's a villain and he suckers you in. And again, the greatest trick the devil the devil ever pulled was making you believe that he didn't exist. You know, that's what he does to the whole audience. That's what he does to those who he's telling the story to. He he makes them believe that he doesn't exist, that he is not who this this person is. So that makes him a very notable and memorable villain. My five. I do not have a one through five on this. I just had a group of five that I came up with. 
Um, although if I had to pick one, I, I do have a number one in mind. Save him for last then. Sure. Um, one of them is Hal 9000. I think Hal nine. I think Hal nine thousand is a tremendous villain because it's just cold, and and he just he with without any thought cuts the tether to an astronaut and freezes out and destroys the life systems of three others and almost kills a, a fifth. All in the name of the mission. All because this is what I've been told to do. There's there's no thinking. There's no, there's no thought. Just this cold robot in the middle of cold space who all of a sudden you realize has more emotion than any of the characters who he's been around, which which you see at the very end of Hal's quote-unquote life. You suddenly realize he's got... He's got more emotion than any of these these guys. Yeah, and I can feel it. even though you and boy, yeah, so chilling. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that. Very chilling the way that Hal's voice does all of these different things and also executes executing the the people who he's traveling with along the way. So Hal 9000 from 2001: A Space Odyssey really stand out. Um, another one, I had Hannibal Lecter as well. Like, if you're talking about pure evil, you're talking about just yeah. homicidal evil, Hannibal Lecter. And and the crazy thing is, I, I talked about that line between good and evil. You see that line Way very... in his rearview mirror. You see that line, though, with Clarice Starling knowing she has to toe that line in order to be able to get into the head of Buffalo Bill and figure that out with... By talking to another criminal who, like you said, has left behind the idea of good and evil a long time ago, and yet he uses this as a game. He uses this as a chance to have a little bit of fun. He uses this as a chance to to mess with Clarice and to get himself in a position to do what he does by the end of The Silence of the Lambs. But, you know, one interesting thing, you know, your list and my list, if you were in a shopping mall and you'd had to bump up against a notorious killer— you're probably safe with Hannibal Lecter in the store. Even if it's a cooking store, you're probably safe. The Joker is a whole other matter. You might not make it right. into the mall. Yeah, I'm, yeah, with Hannibal, with Hannibal, he knows. It's, he knows, and that's the terrifying thing about him, too, is that he's an incredibly smart villain in addition to being a, a um, homicidal one, too. Ready when you are, Sergeant Peppery. Yeah. Well, even the Hannibal so, show, I only watched a couple of episodes. It was a little disturbing for me. It was bringing back, oh, some, man. It was bringing back some PTSD for me, honestly. Um, but uh, the, he actually forms a friendship with Will Graham. They're, yes. they're buddies. Yes. They got a little bromance thing going on. and they a very are actually, sadistic kind of friendship. Yeah. They're kind of the Luke and Vader kind of relationship in a way. I mean, they're... they're and it's a means to an end, yeah. too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, two others that I went very offbeat with. One is, and I, I forget exactly how his last name is pronounced, but uh, Max Caddy, oh, or Katie, yeah, Max Katie from uh, Cape Fear. Yeah, which version? The old one, Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Okay, absolutely terrifying, terrifying villain because throughout, like with tell Robert, me why and then tell me what with, makes him better than De Niro's version. With Rob, well, I haven't watched the De Niro version, oh, so okay. I'd have to see that for myself. But with Robert Mitchum's, 
he's a guy who I have seen as a good guy in the past, and that's why another guy I'd put in here is um, Henry Fonda, uh, as an honorable mention, would be Henry Fonda's character from Once Upon a Time in the West, because you have seen this actor as a good person in other movies. That's how you mostly equate them. And now you are seeing them as somebody who is just evil. And Robert Mitchum is this tall, somewhat lethargic kind of, and almost even a little laconic kind of guy in this movie. And he just reeks of terror with the way that they use the black and white and the shadows and the look on his face and the way that they filmed some of it and the the way they use the music. Very, very chilling movie. Now, and Andy, who played the who played the, the the attorney in that movie? The good guy, Gregory Peck. That's right. Yeah, Gregory Peck. So very very chilling the uh, the way that Robert Mitchum plays that character. Like I watched uh, after watching that movie, I was I was genuinely chilled thinking about you know the way that they had portrayed him, and again, just pure evil, evil, and and yet masquerading in moments as. And to the general public as, I'm not a bad guy, but Gregory Peck's character, he knows this guy is awful. And you as the audience know this guy is awful, and yet he's getting away with it. Makes him makes him a very, very notable villain. Another another villain, again, very. Uh, this was a recent movie that, I had got, that I've gotten back into, and I just shared it with a friend for the first time this weekend, and he thought it was really good. Eleanor Iceland. From the Manchurian Candidate. Oh, okay. Oh, the, the I wouldn't have thought of the that. The ends one. to which she puts uh, her son um, in in that movie. Um, it it's so it, it's so heartbreaking. That movie is is heartbreaking at times with the way that. Um, why am I blanking on I the name of that, that Shaw's Raymond Shaw's character? Yeah, just thought of it now. That Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey. What he is put to in that movie and his mother, his mother trying to explain it to him when he is feigning being in a being in a state of of hypnosis at the end of the movie. The logic that she tries to put into it, you just the twisted logic behind it that she tries to give of. I didn't know they'd put you up to this much, but we have to do this. And she's talking about putting the United States of America into an authoritarian state, essentially, and that this is what is ne- necessary. And, and I was willing to put you in this just is so chilling that she's willing to do all this to her son that he lots of spoilers here, by the way, that he's willing to that he that she drives him to the point of murdering the people that he has, including his own wife, the only woman he ever found love with, the only woman who ever really unlocked him and helped him to become more than just this detestable person. But why was he detestable? Because of his mother. Because she was as controlling and manipulative as she was, and now she tries to justify it. And it's just so sick to see that. Like, she is she is a repulsive villain like the way that she drives him to the points that he is driven to in that movie you're just like what an awful awful character and what a villain yeah yeah that's you know Manchurian Candidate is one that I wasn't even really on my radar I mean certainly notable you know there's a couple different versions even Meryl Streep are you talking about the Meryl Streep version or the original version I'm talking the original Angela Lansbury Lansbury, who she was nominated for best supporting actress Oscar 
that year for no that performance. Jessica Fletcher was so good at solving mysteries. She knew the demented mind. <laughs> yep, that's right, because she had played one. It's yep. funny that on our top list of bad guys, you're putting the tea kettle Angela Lansbury from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, man. No. Well, again, speaking of characters who you wouldn't <laughs> know, like who you wouldn't expect to be in a position like that, man, she plays the villain really well but my number one is the joker it's it's the joker like you talk about chaotic pure evil i am talking heath ledger's okay. joker because there doesn't seem to be an out throughout so much of that movie and in fact even when batman wins he doesn't win and that's boy he has to take the blame yeah he has to take the blame and boy what a what a villain when you can reach that point where to win is to not win in the end. That is the depravity and the success of the Joker's villain, is that he he puts you in a no-win scenario where you truly have to give something up in order to win. That's one of the, the genius points of The Dark Knight, is the fact that victory has a grim cost. And that's one of the, the sad things about the movie, and yet at the same time it makes him such a compelling villain because he's got an answer even though like you said he's a dog chasing cars there is a method to his madness and Harvey Dent's realization of that is one of the the movie's major sticking points that that maybe you don't think about initially but it's a major point in that movie is Harvey Dent's realization that the Joker may be onto something here by and but he only realizes that because his evil side has been tapped into by the Joker well he took as he said in the movie, he took the best one of us and dragged him into the mud. That's right. And made him one of the worst of us. So the White Knight becomes, well, you can't say the Dark Knight, but, you know. Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk some heroes. All let's, right. Let's, let's flip, flip it on the good side. All right. Do you want me to go down my list or do you want to keep going? Well, let's go through your list. All right. Yeah. I, like, again, I just did a straight top five. Um, and there's a lot of guys that I'm like, oh, I got to get him in the top five. But for whatever reason... I voted not to. So number five, Spider-Man, specifically the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Wow. Yes. Okay. Here's why. It's his role really is the, it comes down to the line with great power comes great responsibility. How often are we maybe should be learning this lesson that we just don't seem to? You've got great responsibility. And his character is all about sacrifice. The things he wants is Kirsten Dunst. He wants Mary Jane. But he can't. And even he wants to propose to her, he has the ring and he can't because he's not ready to be a husband yet because he's too self-centered. Say what you want about the you know symbiotic black ooze, but he has to learn to give up the things he wants in order to do what he needs to because he has such great responsibility. Those movies were tone setters as far as Absolutely. the logic and ethos behind superheroes. I don't think... Superhero movies had gotten into exploring the why behind their heroes as much as Spider-Man did. To that point, I don't think really the why had been explored quite as much with, with some of, of the ones that had preceded it. It really got into that quite a bit. There's a lot of credit that needs to go to Sam Raimi for the way that he crafted those movies. The third one, you got to blame up to studio interference. I mean, they just was way too many cooks in the kitchen at that point, and it got out of control. So that's not a shining example, but there are still lessons to be taken from it. But Tobey Maguire, you never see the good guy cry. But, you, I mean, how many times did you see a big sab, a sob fest 
from Tobey Maguire. He yeah. did a great job in that role. He really did. And you don't have superheroes in real life, but it was almost presented like the Dark Knight in that if there was a Bill Gates-type Bruce Wayne billionaire playboy that was going to become a superhero, how would it happen? If there was such a thing as a radioactive spider or whatever you want to call it that turned you into a superhero, how would it happen? It's done in that regard realistically and the challenges that come with it. You don't just presto become a good guy. It's a struggle in duality and trying to live the life that you want. You're given everything, but at the same time, you're left with nothing because you have to serve your power, and that means self-sacrifice. And that's largely what that movie is about. And it takes three movies before he kind of lands and loses and then lands the the gal that he really wants. And and there's nothing to say about what's come after. I think Andrew Garfield did a good job as the amazing Spider-Man Tom Holland and the new Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home. Absolutely with the MCU. But Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi versions, the first two especially, they really brought something special to the table. Surprising but really good choice. I like it. Here's one that really kind of threw me for a loop and it almost didn't make my top five is the T-800 Terminator. Oh, wow. Because he's also... He is a villain too. Well, and here's the thing. They're all different guys. It's not like one Terminator lives and makes it into the next movie and makes it into the next movie. It's like the shark in Jaws. It's a different shark each movie. They kill it at the end of each one. So it just happens to be another shark that looks like the last one, but it's not the same animal. So you've got essentially a character that's a bad guy and one of the all-time bad guys in the first Terminator movie. But he became such an anti-hero that Terminator 2 especially, you have a machine that learns the value of human life. And he is so, pardon me, badass that you know he can handle whatever you're going to throw at him. Oh, he might lose a limb in the process, but he's going to, he's capable enough to put his head down and push forward and get it done, probably at his own detriment and at his own sacrifice also. He really learns a message as a machine that we as humans just still haven't learned. We don't learn from other people's mistakes, let alone our own. And here's a machine, his first time out who realistically, who knows how long he was on the assembly line before he was sent back in time in Terminator 2. But as far as our perspective, he doesn't make it a week and goes from cold robot to more empathetic than Jimmy Carter. You know, I mean, just what a transformation. (laughs) Bad president, but a good guy, you know, Jimmy Carter. It's quite um, a comparison. Yeah, I just compared Arnold Schwarzenegger to Jimmy Carter. Who saw that coming? You mean, Jimmy Carter? I think you just compared the T-800 to Jimmy Carter. Yeah. (laughs) I am here to build your house. Habitat for humanity. <laughs> okay, anyway, I'm a tough crowd. Anyway. <laughs> Number three, Darth Vader did not make the list, but Luke Skywalker did. Luke Skywalker. The All Star right. Wars, the original trilogy. We're not talking about the sequel trilogy. We've already talked about our beefs with that. Right. So we're talking the original New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. It is the clearest, most defined version of the hero's journey archetype that I've ever heard. Here's a nobody. He's he's farming water on the desert planet of Tatooine. That's what he is. That's what they do. They're growing water, harvesting water on a desert planet. Moisture farmers. I like your description of it. Learns that he could be more than he is, which is something that I think could be said for every single one of us at some point in our lives when we're just nobodies and you find out I could do something with my life and do whatever it is. And then he does, but he doesn't just rise to the ranks of ultimate. He thinks he does. And then he gets his butt kicked, loses and loses a hand in the process, has daddy issues and 
finally overcomes all that and does become theoretically, if you depending on how you reinterpret the chosen one, he might be the ultimate, um, the prophecy and the force. You know, it's not that it was Anakin. Anakin brought about the chosen one, which is Luke, if you read the prophecy that way. Or his role is significant because him coming along helps nudge the chosen one sure. back in line. And he largely, almost single-handedly, is responsible for the redemption of one of the worst movie characters. And by that, I mean evil movie characters, and brings about the resurgence of Anakin out of Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. And just before Vader dies... He redeems himself, which still makes Vader make my top ten, just not my top five, because the whole arc, one through six, is Anakin, good guy falling, and then redeeming himself. And that's largely because of Luke. Luke is the, you know, when you look up good guy in Encyclopedia Britannica, you should have a picture of Luke Skywalker right next to it. He's the archetype of good guy, which is why the sequel movies just don't hold water. They just don't. Even Mark Hamill had said, look, my job is to serve the story. But the story didn't serve the character at all. It just didn't. And so I agree with that very much. So I think you have to discount the sequel movies because, you know, eh. anyway. um, So Luke Skywalker, number three. Number two, this is one that to me came out of left field, but I think it works. Martin Riggs from Lethal Weapon, specifically Mel Gibson. Okay. All right. Why Riggs? So Riggs hits it for me because here's such a troubled guy. I mean, one of the first you, you learn the first time you see him in the first Lethal Weapon movie, he's he's a cop. He's buying drugs. Oh, he's another scum. Oh, he's a cop. Okay, but he's a little crazy. And the next time you see him, he's got a gun in his mouth. He's ready to take his head off because his wife died recently. He's having a tough time. Here's a dark, dark scene and a dark, dark character who, over the course of the four movies, not only learns to forgive himself and love himself. He begins to love others, and he has almost an extended family with Roger Murtaugh and his family. He doesn't knock on the door. He just walks in with a load of laundry (laughs) and maybe some orange juice. You know, just he's just part of things and takes on a a gal and becomes friendly in a weird way with with people that you wouldn't think that anyone would be friends with. But he finds a way to do it, and he's there for the greater good. To heck with procedures. You know, when the South African consulate are doing bad things and you can't touch them legally, to heck with that. You know, we're, we're going to do this. He knows what's right. He might go through things that are technically illegal, but anybody that knows anything, are they going to seriously go after this for anything more than procedural? Or do you know that he really is doing the right thing? You know, there's something about the madness and the manicness of that. And some of that you have to wonder how much is in the writing and how much is just that Mel Gibson is, he just has that kind of energy about him just naturally and it comes through. And it's, it's an interesting, very, very different dynamic character. He's not a polarizing character. He's one that you're going to learn to like, but you're seeing him the first two scenes in about as dark a place as you can find somebody. Mm-hmm. And we guarantee you, you're going he's going to grow on you like a fungus and you're going to love him by the time not only the first <laughs> movie's over, but through all four of them. And there's talk about a fifth one now. Really? Stay tuned. Really? Hey. If I have a feeling this would be like Cobra Kai. Are they doing it just to do it, or is there a, is there a story here? And I'm kind of wondering, with Mel Gibson's personal life outside of movies really taking a hit in the last 10, 20 years, could that be tied into things too? You know, Mel Gibson himself has been in some dark, dark places. So has Riggs. Could there be a parallel here? I don't know. It's, they haven't done it. They haven't written it. They, they haven't filmed it. There's talk they're gonna, and that it would be the last one. Even Richard Donner, who's like 143, 
is going to direct it again. So he'll make all five of them. It's the same crew. Wow. This doesn't happen unless people really want to do it. Like everybody coming back. That... Everyone that's still around. Michael Kamen, unfortunately, the composer, he's no longer with us. Okay. But everybody has been through these, for the most part, all the way through. So it's amazing how that's happened, wow. and that's testament to what they're making. Not just and not any one of them have dropped the ball, but b- despite the series, as the, long as there's a plan, as long as there's a plan, sounds like it. But okay. the character himself, what an interesting character, and he truly Very out of left field. He's he's a such a flawed good guy. As much as Luke is drinking his blue milk and he's just wholesome and he should, you know, he's just a poster boy next door. Martin Riggs is just as good, but you would never want your daughter to date him. Interesting. How about that? I got Hoove speechless. <laughs> First person in history to do it. That brings me to number well, one. The complexity piece makes for some really good heroes sometimes. And I was I was thinking about it in terms of what I've got written down for some of the logic behind heroes that I that I think are really interesting and compelling. And some of that is complexity when they have a choice. Like Riggs kind of has a choice a little bit and eventually he chooses to be good. In the end, so that's why. In the beginning, because I was thinking, you know, that kind of resonates with something I've got written down. Yeah, I mean, what is Riggs really? He's a sniper. He's one of the best shots in the world, you know. And that's what he was doing. And he was a Vietnam soldier back in the day. And he just the only thing separating him from the good guys that he has a badge. That's it. He's not a good guy, but becomes one. You know, so he's like yeah. he yeah. really truly becomes one over the course of the series. It's it's bizarre how that works. And you might think, well, and I'll give you a spoiler here. Batman is not going to be my number one. He's not on the, he barely makes the top 10 for me because Batman is a good guy out of revenge in a way. So he's doing good things, but almost from the wrong perspective, according to me. And he almost has a mental, to me, from my perspective, Batman is all right kind of mentality. He doesn't want to, but he feels compelled to. You know, I think Batman, to find the catharsis for him is the day that he no longer feels that he needs to be Batman. To me, that's the end game in the Batman story. I felt the revenge. I felt that I needed to do this because my parents were killed and society of Gotham has gone wrong. So I'm going to be that guy. So in a weird way, it's like a Martin Riggs, but Martin finds a way to better himself and becomes a better human. And Batman is kind of stuck there. The next step, and unfortunately, that's the thing you can't do because when you do that, you kill the character of Batman. But maybe the Batman character is like the Robin character. Bruce Wayne is the first Batman. He finally steps out of that, and I don't need to be Batman anymore. And Robin ascends to be the next Batman, like is hinted at at The Dark Knight Rises, something like that. I think that would be a more natural progression, but that's probably why I don't write comic books. But what's your number one? Who do you, give, me, give me a guess. Who do you think I'd go for? Indiana Jones. You're right. Yeah. Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones to me is the all-time good guy. He's just he's just a guy that's he's after these artifacts. He's risking his life. Why? This belongs in a museum. It's he's just the ultimate good guy. He's maybe not squeaky clean. I mean, clearly he had let's just call it it could be a statutory situation with Marion before the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was young. It was you knew what you were doing. It, but he's he's not a great guy, but he's just he can't help being what he is. His very nature is that he's there for the art and the preservation, and he's a good guy. He didn't have to go back in and save those kids in Temple of Doom. Let's get out of here, right? 
all of us. And he frees the kids. He's just an all-around good guy. He's one of those guys, he's not going to kick a puppy even to get it out of the way. And his ultimate enemies are the red, th- the red threat and the Nazis. And he's just, I mean, how can you do, I don't know how many more ways I can say he's just a good guy. Indiana Jones is almost a larger-than-life character who is very understated in being yes. that very thing. Because he is the... He is this ultimate adventurer type. He's this, you know, he's this trailblazer. He's all of those things. And yet, and yet you would think that his personality would be larger than life too. Well, this guy's a professor who really when he talks is just he's just Almost very monotone. mild-mannered, very understated and he's he's very direct and to the point as well. I mean, that's that's kind of how he is with women when he interacts with them in in the movies. It's he almost just, strikes out every time, but he manages to circle back and make it happen. It's very yeah, it's very to the point with the way that he interacts and the way that he goes about his business and in in the like even when he comes up against that guy with the sword with the sword who's who's doing all those tricks and stuff in in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and he just pulls out his pistol shoots him dead and he's like I'm not dealing with I, this. I'm I'm moving on and everyone's all excited and he's like what the heck get me out of here I need to go look for Marion I mean that scene th- he's he's that speaks to I think the juxtaposition between what he could be within that. And what he really is, which is part of what makes him a really fascinating hero. And let's talk a parallel here with Harrison Ford real quick. Um, so in Star Wars, there's a the whole thing about Han shot first. Han shoots Greedo just to avoid it. It's a great moment that speaks for defining what the character of Han Solo is. Then you get to the sword guy, Indiana Jones, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Really, there was an action sequence planned, but not to embarrass Mr. Harrison Ford. He had a horrible case of diarrhea that day. I'm not making this up. This is true. And there was a big sequence, and he was really suffering the day they were shooting it. He was like, I don't think I can do this. Can we just shoot him? And they just, they just, why not? And that's how it got worked <laughs> in at the last minute. And it says, no wonder so he much. looks a little, uh, yeah, he yeah. was not feeling very good that day. I don't mean to embarrass him, but it's the truth. And that became an, it was an accidental, whoops. Here's the best thing about Harrison, or about Indiana Jones. Anybody really, could have a version of Indiana Jones. I'm mm-hmm. not Batman. I'm not Luke Skywalker. I can't control the Force. I don't have webs that shoot from my wrist. I'm not a cyborg. <laughs> I'm not a crime fighter. But Indiana Jones isn't any of that. He's just a guy who has good wits. He trusts his instincts. He's got a pistol and a whip. Well, he's on also his hip. pretty smart. I mean, he is he's a professor. Smart. He's academic smart, and he knows when he's going out what he's looking for. So he's an expert in his field. But we're all experts, hopefully, in all of our own respective fields, whatever they are. And should you have to go to extreme work conditions, if you're cunning on what you do for your living is what you need to do to make it through, and you've got just some kind of street smarts, you're going to do fine just based on what this guy – he goes into the temple. He doesn't have a plan. He just kind of figures it out as he He, goes. Well, he kind of had a plan. He sort of has a plan, but he didn't know there's a big boulder coming. Yes, he came with a big bag of sand to try to wade out the statue, but he got it wrong, and then he ran out. Did he remember to not step on the pressure switches on the way out? No. They all come shooting out. But okay, Mythbusters proved that he would have been safe anyway. That's another story. So he's, anyway. he's an, any guy. You could watch those movies like I did when I was a kid and immediately go out into the backyard because we had a little wilderness in the yard. And I could go grab a rope and my dad's hat and put on some kind of a jacket and I would become Indiana Jones. Even if you'd end up flat on your back swinging yes, on that I would, rope. Because he did too. <laughs> so he didn't win every yep. fight. He just was smarter.
Including that dude, that massive dude who he was fighting next to the airplane. Yeah, he, just, a good he knew better than he knew enough to duck. Yep. So it's it, it's all it takes sometimes. He's a very much an everyman guy. He could be any one of us, and he's my number one. Those are some of my favorite heroes, the everyman or the everywoman. I I like those a lot. In fact, one of my one of my five is in that category. I I love the everyman or everywoman because they're a relatable hero. Then. I like also the ones who set an example. I'm okay sometimes with a movie that that really that shows someone as a shining light of the best of us. You know, for example, Jefferson Smith in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think is a great example of that. You're, you're almost like this guy almost seems too squeaky clean, and it's like, well, you know what? Within a movie like this, within the corrupt politicians that he's around, it's kind of nice to have somebody who upholds. American values and the Constitution and what what should it really look like within this setting? You know, it's kind of good to have somebody who is an example of what it really should look like and who is a shining example in that way or the best of us in that way. So I, I like I like characters. I don't always like characters who are, are totally squeaky clean in that nature, but I like sometimes those who set a great example in that way. And I love the heroes who have a choice, but who choose good, who who really are pulled one way or, or another. Um, I, he's not in my five, but Frodo Baggins from The Lord of the Rings is a great example of that. I just where watched that last Really, night. you feel you feel that burden, the the tug of war that's going on in Frodo's soul with carrying the ring, going through that, and that's very much the tug of. The tug of good and evil that that we as people contend with, and that all of us must contend with, and yet Frodo, in the midst of that, he he really does feel the pull of evil, and yet he still fights to choose good. And with Sam next to him, he he has a companion who is able to help him to choose good. In Sam that way, Sam is almost the bigger, the better good guy in a way. He really is. He's, yeah, he's like the crutch that just keeps everybody upright and moving yep. forward. Without him, I don't think they would have made it. Well, Indiana Jones didn't make my top five, but he was he was around the top five because, again, for reasons that you stated earlier, um, I, I mentioned Frodo, I mentioned Jefferson Smith. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is another one who I like a lot as far as a, a top five hero because Just he's... Just the character or a particular version of him? Well, I, li- I like his character on the whole all the way okay. through, but especially I, I do think Ewan McGregor brought a, a lot to his his character, just this this guy who this guy who remains on the straight and narrow and who ends up providing a guiding presence later on for Luke Skywalker in that hero's journey that you talked about that he goes through. Um, and you watch a little bit of Obi-Wan's development throughout the course of... Uh, although I, I do kind of wish they'd flesh that out more, which maybe they will in the upcoming uh, miniseries when they get into that. Maybe we'll see more depth to Obi-Wan than we've ever seen before. You're going to have to. What's, what are they also they going to show while he's marooned himself out into the deserts of Tatooine? There's, there is great potential in Hermit Obi-Wan. <laughs> All right, I have a definitive number one, but I have a couple of others that, that hover around. I am going to disagree with you on Batman okay. because I do have Batman in my top five. and These are the good kind of debates I like. I agree. And I like Batman a lot because I think there is a choice. There is a, a quite a choice that's involved with him. You know, it's like what Rachel Dawes tells him in Batman Begins. We all have a choice, Bruce. You know, we have a choice whether we're going to get involved in the fight or not. And ultimately, 
Bruce decides I am going to get involved in the fight. Is there? I, I think that movie especially really delves into the revenge factor well You're talking with about Bruce Batman Wayne. Begins, right? Yes, okay. because it starts out, I think, being a quest for revenge, but I think eventually Bruce learns to be able to curtail his emotions in that regard, and that he has to be able to set that aside, that you can't just be going for revenge. He he faces that with Carmine Falcone early on there in the movie, um, and, and with, uh, well, with Falcone, and then with the guy who basically had killed his parents. He he goes for revenge, but then he realizes, you know what? This isn't going to ultimately satisfy me in the end. This is not going to satisfy me in any meaningful way. What can I do? And he becomes a character who, over the course of those movies, really... And that that's what makes Batman a more relatable superhero than anybody, because he... He is the most every man or every woman kind of superhero of the main superheroes who are out there, whether it's Justice League or, um, or or the Marvel characters, because he he is a person. And I he's say every man, even he's though his he's own a, superpower, even though he's a billionaire. I mean, his it, money is his superpower, right? That's his superpower, which is it's ironic that I say he's the most every man of all the superheroes. Well. It's because he's a person, and these other people are either bitten in some way or have a, a magical superpower, and yet this billionaire is the most relatable superhero. You can disagree with me on that, and you're absolutely right if you want to disagree with me on that. But he is the most relatable in that he has a choice to make, and he is a person who's who's not been touched in some miraculous way apart from the wealth and the resources and the knowledge that he has, and yet he does oftentimes take on an anti-hero in some respects because of what he has to choose to do. So that's why I like Batman in that regard, and the way that he gets pushed to the brink sometimes by the best villains who he goes up against who really prey on his his nature being that he's he's a person. Yeah, I certainly do not, I would not use the word an everyman with Bruce Wayne or <laughs> not even close. No, but I, I hear where. I but hear he's where you're the going. closest to that of any yeah, superhero. You an, understand he's what not I mean? An alien. He doesn't have magical powers. Right. He has the powers of money that can foster innovation that he can use for crime fighting. And I, I get what you're trying to say. He's the most human of the bunch. That's that's the better description. He's the most human superhero that there is. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have used every I, man. I, I get what I you're saying. I, 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 I edit I, that out. I, I I smell what you're wafting. So, yeah, he's the most human of all of them. Yeah, every man is the wrong word to Though yeah, for me the one thing with Batman, I don't I'm not saying Batman's not a hero. He's just not in my top 5. He was an easy one to not put in the top 5 because I could find anybody else that I'd put down that I'd put ahead of him. But he'd be in my top 10. He just seems to me very reluctant as a superhero. He like Martin Riggs could very easily go the wrong way, and he almost does in Batman Begins. He's going to go and shoot somebody and become locked up had he done it. But that's part of what makes him a great hero is that he realizes somebody has to do it. Somebody has to step forward and and make these yeah. difficult choices. And he makes the choice, much like what Alfred says in The Dark Knight, he makes the choice that nobody else can make, the right choice. He has the ability to do it, and he ends up being in the right way Almost a combination between reluctance. You know, it's not what he wanted to do. It's not what he aspired to do. It's what he feels almost guilt-driven to do. 
And I think had that not happened, oh, obviously you have to have a catalyst to become the ultimate good guy. I mean, if Uncle Owen and Aunt Maru had lived, he'd probably still be on Tatooine and, you know, growing water, Luke Skywalker. But he just reluctantly forces himself to do it, but he's darn good at what he does. And he certainly has the passion to do it, but you know in every iteration of Batman, maybe short of Adam West, he'd rather be doing other things. But that's part of what I think we all contend with, and that's why... In my very ineloquent way, I was trying to say that he's very similar to a, a normal person in that regard. Not an everyman. Yeah, if I could go back and edit that, I would. Uh, because you, you, it, he's not an everyman since he is a billionaire. Like I got, like I got what you're saying, trying to say. He's He is the most relatable superhero in that he deals with a lot of choices that everyday, that everyday people deal with. Boys and girls right. that are following along, did you understand what Poove intended yeah, to say? Let's move on. Yeah. Um, Rocky Balboa. Speaking of the everyman, there's there's an everyman. He is an everyman because that's and that's part of why I really like him a lot because he um, is this because you're both from Philly. Well, I mean, I like that too, but <laughs> I mean, the fact that he is just this everyday guy who gets a chance at a title shot, just wants to go the distance. He gets a shot and he goes the distance, even as he's. Even as he is kind of walking through, you know, everyday things, you know, a girl who he's trying to trying to show that he really likes, but he's not sure how to do that, and she's not sure how to show him that that she likes him, um, and he's, you know, he's just trying to go day to day in terms of finding work, finding a job, you know, learning how to read a little bit too, you know, in the ne- in the second movie, you know, he's and, and his journey in that regard, and then what happens when you reach the peak? How do you stay sharp when you reach the peak? And the fact that he has to to deal with that in the third movie. Um, how do you deal with loss? He deals with that quite a bit throughout the course of the series. And what do these things teach you about life? And that's what he gets to hand off to his son, as well as to Adonis Creed as well. Rocky's journey is is a great one to go on, especially if you skip Rocky Five. It's an it's a really enjoyable journey to go on to see the various stages that that his life comes to and how his his life impacts impact other people then as well as he goes through everyday things but is doing so within the context of becoming the top boxer in the world it's funny if you look at rocky's whole career and you factor in the first two creed movies as rocky's 7 and 8 rocky kind of peaks at rocky 3 it's all about the build and now he's champion and then all the brain damage, and now Adrian's dead, and now every, I mean Mickey's dead, and Apollo's he's just dead. Trying, Apollo's dead. He's just trying to deal with all the after. He's just a, a broken man for the most part. The last several movies, trying yeah. to find ways to prop up others, and trying to find ways to make himself up. He peaks so early, it's, but he still has such a journey. It's the fight outside of the ring, yeah, and it's the fight that we go through at times during life, and that's that's part of what makes Rocky such a such a great character and then how does he hand that off to others while while trying to go through those things himself because as much as adonis learns from him rocky learns from adonis too in in creed and in creed too and that's that's another reason why i like those movies so much is that hey he's he's still learning even though he's like i don't want to fight anymore and and adonis is like you can't just do that You, you can't just do that and give up on it that's not who you are and he and he helps him go through that fight then yeah so love rocky um James Bond is another one of my favorites simply because of one again one of those characters who is just the epitome of something and he's the epitome of cool and, yeah. and that's 
that's part of why I like him as a hero. And But what's great then is it, it wouldn't just be as simple as going with the earlier versions of James Bond because that would almost be too shallow. That's why I like the Daniel Craig Bond because there's there is a depth and a complexity that starts to become realized much more, more. so than any of the other versions. Maybe with the exception of in on Her Majesty's Secret Service because he loses something there in, in losing his his wife. The very last second of the movie. Yeah, I know, but she gets shot, and ten seconds later, the credits roll. You're like, well, it just sucks the air out of the theater. Which but, is yeah. part of what makes that movie so good. But he, like, he quits in the beginning. He wants to go after Blofeld. No. Well, then I resign. Well, okay, you can go. Yeah. Then. You know, he's yep. He's a little more rogue. It's a different movie. Yeah. And But again, it, this I don't think James Bond would totally fit in this category unless Daniel Craig's was in there because all of a sudden, Bond's got some issues. Bond's got some reasoning. Bond's got this and that that are behind why he is what he is. And that comes to the forefront for the first time a little bit more. So, But it's the cool factor with James Bond is, I think, a big reason why I included him on the list. Because there's there's a cool about his hero. Bond is an interesting one for me. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. He is heroic, obviously. But for him, it's a day on the job. I mean, he finishes blowing up one super bad guy. And then he takes a week holiday. And then you know he's going to blow up another bad guy. Sometimes it's for the cause. Sometimes it's for the country. Sometimes it's personal. But a lot of times it's just for him at the day at the office. But he's, he's almost, he's a, he's a bad good guy in that he does the right things, but for the, almost the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, and so he almost is accidentally a hero. That's his job. Literally, that's his job. But he really would rather do anything else. He wants to find the hot girl. Well, your mind's not on the mission. He doesn't care about the mission. He's checking out the gal in the cocktail dress over there. That's what he really wants to. And if he happens to stumble over the electric cord that pulls out the bomb, great. You know, it's, he's almost reluctant. I will, I will give a caveat here uh, with Bond. He's not a hero in terms of how he handles women. No. He is not a hero in that regard. Let's, let's put that out there. It's, I, it's, it's funny the, when it's some of the other things that that make him such a an interesting hero, and again, some of the reasoning. Like I said, the Daniel Craig part of what Bond has become fleshed out as is part of what makes him such a compelling hero. But there are elements of him again the the womanizing side, not very her, not heroic. That's and I want to make that caveat there. It's funny though when you look at Bond overall, you go from start with Sean Connery, Doctor No, all the way to well, we haven't seen it yet because it gets keeps getting delayed no time to die with daniel craig's last outing he's morphed over time and as you go through some of the early movies and clearly a lot of very sexist stuff going on that you couldn't get away with today but bond as a movie goes each movie is brilliant in that it's not made to look like it's timeless it's very much a product of its time the way things are presented, the way things look. So as you watch the James Bond movies over time, you're literally going through time. You're seeing the pop culture, you're seeing the fashion, you're seeing what was acceptable at the time, maybe not now. But then you get to GoldenEye with Pierce Brosnan's first outing, and M, the boss, is now a woman. And they're very, very conscious about, you know, I think you're a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur, a relic of a past era. You know, so where does Bond belong? Forget the fact that there's no more Cold War when 95 rolled around and they made GoldenEye. But you just don't treat women like that anymore. It just I'm not saying that it was ever acceptable, but it's what it was. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying it was. You look at some of the stuff that Sean Connery would do. 
You don't do that. You just don't. But right. I'm saying that yep. from 2020 eyes. When I was a kid watching that, and that's the way things were, I'm not saying they were good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way things were. That's the way things were. But then you start to see a different way, and you see the same movie now through different eyes. You're like, man, you can't, you can't do that. It's campy in that it's acceptable in the time that it was. But if cancel culture is anything, could the first 15, 20 Bond movies – could they be erased just because of how they approach things like that? I don't know. The so evolution, you look at him evolving as a character. The evolution of the character, yeah, is absolutely is what has made it a lot more, a lot more of a hero. That at least in the modern day, at, at least with what the character is now, you can get behind. Yeah, oh, absolutely. More. But the, it's the arc of the change. Nobody starts out right first thing in the morning perfect. Yeah. You kind of evolve to that. So if you look, or oh, you try to evolve to that anyway. If you look at if you look at Sean Connery, the Roger Moore and Lazenby and and Dalton and Pierce Brosnan and Craig, there's an there's an evolution there, and he's still not perfect. He's almost more flawed now, but it's an evolution. Uh, it, I like Andy Dufresne a lot as a hero. Yeah, I put Andy Dufresne in in my top five for hero characters because. Andy represents hope in a very hopeless place. And Andy represents hope in the midst of hopelessness that he could have drifted into with the situations he gets in within the prison. And you you sometimes forget that that movie takes place over the course of years. Um, and watching the way that his character still holds on to that, that idea of hope. Why? Well, you find out some of the why as the movie progress uh, as the movie gets into its final act that he had a reason to hope but at the same time he could have also been broken during the course of being in there but he wasn't and hope is the best of things to hang on to and that's the the lesson that comes through there in the end and i love how that gets passed on then to red as well and that andy andy gives him that reason but andy's character is great too because there's there's a thinking element to him as well and there but there's also this this poise that comes through his character too. And I think Tim Robbins played that really well within that movie. So Annie Dufresne and, and in the interest of time, I'll move on here to my last one. Well, let me, let me say something but, real quick on what your thought was. I don't think I would have thought of Andy Dufresne as a heroic character. Certainly one of the greatest characters, good, bad or indifferent in movie history, honestly, but I wouldn't thought of him as heroic, but you make a point after he spoiler alerts, after he escapes, um, he is a hero in the prison. People are talking about him as if he was legend. You know, new people that come into the prison, they're going to be hearing about this Dufresne guy that escaped before they got there. That played music for the entire prison yard. Oh, yeah. They're exchanging these stories because he's passed into legend and into yeah. lore. Yeah. He absolutely was, for the message he brought to those fellow inmates, heroic. And then, uh, finally, for me, I again, this is part of why it's my favorite movie, but the character of T.E. Lawrence as a I, hero... <laughs> I had is, a feeling is a big reason why, because his character is one of the most complex movie characters I've ever seen. He's torn between two worlds and much like the real T.E. Lawrence torn between two worlds, you know, his beloved Arabia and yet the England that he is from that he is serving for in the war effort. And he just wants to find a home. He just wants to find a place in the world. And in the end, he doesn't. He doesn't find that, and he himself contends with the fact that he is a contradiction in many ways. So he is the sweeping hero that you see in the movie, and yet 
he also deals with a lot of his own humanity. He he becomes something great in his own eyes and in the eyes of others, and he likes that. But he also sees his flaws in the midst of that, too. And that's why he is such a compelling hero character to me, because he has to deal with all of those things that range on the fly. Much like all of us, we have to deal with the fact that we are a range of many things. We are not all that we aspire to be and all that we think of ourselves sometimes. And then what do we do when we realize that we're not that great and when we see that we've got problems and issues about ourselves? How do we handle that? He didn't handle it very well at times within the course of that movie. And sometimes that added to and fueled his own hubris then, especially when others used him for their own manipulation and for their own reasoning on both sides of the equation with both of those things that he so desperately wanted to find a home within. They used him and used his own personal his own personal self-consciousness in that regard. I'm curious. I consider Lawrence of Arabia and Dances with Wolves cut from the same cloth. They're very, 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 very similar. Uh, how do you draw a distinction between uh, Lawrence and uh, Kevin Costner's character of Dunbar? Well, I really can't because I haven't. I think I saw Dances with Wolves one time a long, long, long okay. time ago. But it, if that, but I, I can't think of when of when I last watched it. Okay, if ever. okay, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Okay, well, that yeah, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming. Again, I wouldn't have put him down as heroic, especially since at the end it doesn't really work out. But um, you know, best laid plans. Uh, yeah, I can see where you're going from, but I, I like your perspective on things. People that you'd said, I kind of took an unconventional approach. I didn't go straight up good guys, bad guys, top five. I kind of fleshed it out in some different categories, but I see where your thinking lies, uh, with Lawrence and with others. It's, uh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. It kind of, it kind of shakes you up in a, you know, between Lawrence and Andy Dufresne. I wouldn't have put them down as heroes, but I can see why you did. And it, uh, kind of alters my thinking a little bit. Well, he, you woke me up this morning, Kev. He, Kev, what am I saying? Hoove. Well, here I heroes, just saw Kev looking at me down the hall. Heroes, heroes and villains are are sometimes very complex. There's and, and that's that's I think one of the biggest takeaways, even talking about heroes and villains, is that sometimes you enjoy seeing the best of the best, and sometimes the worst of the worst. But that middle ground, that that shifting sand, that which are they uh, or cheering for the villain or cheering for the quote-unquote villain. You know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they are technically quote-unquote villains, and yet you're cheering for them. You like them. They're charming in the movie. They're the anti-hero. Yeah, they're the anti-hero. And that's part of what what feeds into even who do you like as a hero and villain in that way. There is going to be a lot of complexity involved with it because there's a lot of complexity with us, and sometimes... Movies do a pretty good job of reflecting that. We are. It's funny that you don't you just break it down to its most essence. Boy, are we fans of stories, you know, and a particular medium that pulls you in like nothing else. You know, I love a good book. I love a good show. I love you know, but movies. There's something about movies or good TV. TV is starting to blur the line into movies now. In a lot of ways, it's just what a great way to tell a story when you do it right. I think that's a good place to end on yeah, today, think, too. We've had a lot to say today about yeah, it all. Went a little on the long side, but uh, yeah, I think it's pretty good. I like how you kind of opened my eyes to the definition of hero, maybe villain a little bit, too. Maybe we fired up people's own lists a little bit as well. But Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. 
Thanks for joining us today. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.